Hello, welcome. I'm Melanie Tate and this is Weepies, the podcast that appreciates the great beauty in stories that open up our hearts and make us cry for others and kind of maybe ourselves too, I'm sure. Hello to you, Kim Lester. Hello to you, Melanie Tate. Joining us today is Zoya Patel, who in a way is part of our pod family. Not in a way, she is part of our podcast yeah. family. Zoya is one of the presenters for the Guardian podcast, Book It In, which I was the founding EP on. And Kim, you also produce a podcast with Zoya. Yes, yes, I do. It's called Margin Notes. And I'm going to let Zoya explain what Margin Notes is all about soon. But first of all, Zoya, Tell us about your weeping movie. Hello. This is a very exciting uh, opportunity for me to go back and remember why I cried profusely in the cinema watching this movie. Uh, My weeping movie is Lion. So when this one came out in 2016, I originally was a little bit sceptical because I think it came out a couple of years after Slumdog Millionaire. And being Indian myself, I'm a little bit like jaded to the sad story of you know rags to riches from India especially if it has something to do with like adoption or like a narrative that has a bit of a western savior that comes in but my god within the first five minutes of this movie I had wept through my first issue and it's not even a sad five minutes like the beginning is not Mm. that sad wept through my only tissue because I knew what was coming and my (laughs) friend who was sitting with me we had to like rip my soggy tissue in half so she could have half as well oh oh what are you a crier in movies usually? Uh, I want to say no, but I probably am. I'm a pretty cynical viewer of most things. And I think like maybe because I'm a writer and a critic, I'm always analytical. And so I don't often fully commit to the emotional narrative, but I have mm-hmm. a few key things that will never fail to get tears from me. And that's a sad animal a sad child or a sad old person. Also just in public, like my partner often has to call me out for like looking at an old man eating dinner on his own and being like, this is so sad. He deserves company. Look at him bent over and old. And he'll, and then like two seconds later, his entire rowdy family will arrive and my partner will be like, can you just stop stereotyping these old people? Yeah. Little things really get me. Um, Whereas if I'm told to be sad about something in a movie, I find that harder to connect to. That's so interesting. I'm totally the opposite. I need to be completely manipulated to uh, to tear up <laughs> when watching a movie except for this, but um, we'll talk about that soon. Before we get into talking about Lion, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, Sawyer, and, and explain what Margin Notes is about, but also just a bit of your other stuff as well. Yeah, sure. So I am a writer. Uh, I spend a lot of time writing specifically about race and identity and feminism, I had a book out a couple of years ago called No Country Woman, which was a memoir, um, looking at all those themes. And then I have a novel coming out next year in 2023, again, looking at a lot of those themes. So there's a bit of a pattern there. Um, (laughs) I am um, of Indian background myself. So I was born in Fiji, um, but my family come from North India, if you go back a couple of generations. So I guess on that level, um, a lot about this movie did really speak to me, which we'll have to come back to. Um, and Margin mm. Notes is a podcast that I do with my friend Yen Erickson um, and, of course, you, Kim. So it's uh, it's an interesting um, format. We take a piece of memoir at the beginning of each episode um, that's read and then we do a bit of a chat covering a lot of the themes that come out of it. And I guess specifically we're interested in hearing marginalised um, experiences or stories of um, people who've experienced marginalisation in some way, shape or form. So Generally, it's Yen and I reading pieces that we've written, but we also feature guests. Um, And yeah, a lot of the uh, episodes that we've done have kind of started on one topic and then inevitably moved to another because everything's so interrelated, um, which I think is the fun thing about it. Mm. I'm biased, but it is one of those podcasts that can will will both make you laugh and cry in in the same episode. It's beautiful. We'll Mm. link to it in our show notes as well because we always want as many people as possible to discover margin notes. I just want to ask you something about uh, – you mentioned that, you know, you've got similar themes in your book and your novel. My uh, bestie, who's a theatre director, has a theory about theatre that basically every playwright just is writing the same play over and over again, like dealing with the same stuff, like trying to – to figure out the same things. Do you think that that's the same with novelists really when you sort of, because you, you said before that you're an analytical consumer of culture. So I imagine that's something you've thought about before, Zoya. I think the 
that probably is the case for a lot of us um, who write, particularly if you write across genres, I think sometimes you do come back to the same themes again and again. So I write nonfiction and fiction and I can kind of see that through line. But that said, I personally feel like I am interested in so many different things that I could write in completely different genres and in completely different tones and for completely different audiences. Like I often joke that I really want to write a fantasy series and I'm fairly sure that that would be quite different to other things that I've produced. But then again, maybe I would still just be looking at race through the lens of, you know, different characters in a different world. So who knows? Um, I definitely feel like, however, when you're a writer of colour, I kind of worry about being typecast because I am so interested in writing about race. Um, and I do sometimes think I should just write like a really nice white lady book to get some mainstream success um, and stop putting all these diverse characters in and these like <laughs> complex um, ruminations on feminism and um, and race. I think, you know, maybe there's something there for me to think about if I want a long-term career. <laughs> Hopefully, I we're... hope not. Yeah. Don't you? Like, I, I hope that if you want a long term career, you can continue doing what you're doing because you do it so well. No, yeah. I'm too cynical for that. I accept the market that we're in. <laughs> Here's to money, money, money. Um, so, what's your history with Lion, uh, Zoya, and why did you choose it? So, my history with Lion is actually a very straightforward one in that when it was coming out, there was a lot of press around the story and people were talking about it a lot, and I was quite interested in. Um, well, I used to watch a lot of movies just generally anyway, because I have a lot of film geek friends. So I'd go see most new releases. And this one I was like, oh, you know, hopefully it's a more um, complex take than I felt that like Slumdog Millionaire and those other movies that are, you know, really created for a Western audience, but about an Indian story can be. Um, and also I love Dev Patel, who plays the um, the main mm. character, and he's just like, A, he's hot, but he's also really cool. And it was really, <laughs> mm. um, I think at that time in particular, it was unusual to see an Indian uh, actor get these kind of mainstream roles, and he was landing roles outside of playing just the Indian character. So there were a few reasons why I was interested in watching it. Um, and then there was this weird thing that happened, like, I think it happened just before I watched the movie where I was at dinner with my in-laws and they were chatting about how this movie was coming out and they were talking to the people at their boot camp on a Tuesday night or whatever. Their boot camp. This is going it. somewhere, don't worry. <laughs> and there was this guy who um, was of Indian background himself and they started talking about the story of Lion and he was like, oh, yeah, interesting because a similar thing happened to me. And he was like, <laughs> when I, I was adopted to Australia and when I was a child – we were driving in some like rural area and my brother and I were in the car with my mum and my parents had an argument and I only vaguely remember this, but my father like pushed my mother out of the car and then literally drove them to an orphanage and dropped them off. Um, <gasps> and they, you know, they were too little to know who their mother was. They didn't know how to reconnect with her. They couldn't even say what their own kind of names were and <gasps> they got adopted out to Australia. So like quite a similar story. Oh. Wow. And I remember being like, well, that is insane. This must happen all the time. So I think part of the reason why I like this movie or why I connected to it is because every time I watch it, I have this sense of like, oh, my God, this is actually not an uncommon story. Mm. Mm. And then I kind of want to be like, is it, though, because that's such a um, – that's like quite an easy thing for me over here in the West to think about India, that it's all like – chaos and kids are being dropped off at orphanages without any like system to relocate them to their families and that this kind of you know um this kind of lack of welfare and lack of a clear system is just rife and maybe that's not mm -hmm. the case but you know maybe it was the case 30 years ago how about you kim how did you first come across lion i'm pretty sure the first this is i've only watched it once before this time i'm pretty sure i was on a plane and i'm certain Oof that I cried, like I, that I was sitting mm. on the plane bawling my eyes out. And, yeah, and then I kind of just didn't go back to it again until this rewatch. And, oh, you know, no matter how hard a watch some movies are, they really do deserve another watch, don't they? Oh, that, that's the thing with this film is it's so, it, it's so painful in so many ways that it's really hard to revisit. It's like one of those films that... You know how how you can say, 
maybe you can say Lion is my favourite film or maybe you can say, you know, but you've only seen it once <laughs> yeah. because it's just it's just so emotionally wrenching. And Kim, on a plane, we I know. cry anyway. So yeah. it would just be, wow. Yeah. Well, I first discovered it because I lived in Tasmania when yes. it came out. And so it went along to um, Saru Briley and Sue Briley had told their story for many years on the ABC where I worked at the time. Mm. And so I don't. I, didn't, I don't think I went to the premiere or anything like that, but I was very aware of the Tasmanian connection to it and um, the huge part that Tasmania kind of played in the film. But like you both, I feel like when I first saw it, I started crying in the first 15 minutes mm. and just didn't stop mm. until the end and just found it, like forgot and forgot as well in watching it. Just like my, my memory of it is it being overwhelmingly moving but I didn't realise, like, I didn't remember it for being what is really quite a masterpiece mm. in, in so many different ways. So how about we just start with a quick recap of yeah. the film and then let's get on to chatting about it. So Lion, which is directed by Garth Davis, uh, written by Luke Davies, based on the book by Saru Briley. Five-year-old Saru and his older brother Gudu live in central India and work to support their single mother and sister. Uh, one evening, Gudu leaves to do some night work and Saru begs to go along, but after taking a trip, a train trip, uh, Saru is so tired he collapses on a bench at the station. He's five years old. He's a Teeny, tiny, mm, beautiful little so boy. Little. Um, Gudu reluctantly leaves him there and tells him not to move. But when Saru wakes up along the platform, um, he walks onto an empty train to look for Gudu and eventually goes back to sleep on the train. Mm. When he wakes up, the train is travelling and the carriages are locked. Saru can't leave until it finally stops in Calcutta, 1,500 kilometres away. Oh, it's heart-wrenching, isn't it? Yeah, it is. For the next few months, Saru tries to survive on the streets, having no idea how far he is from his home. He doesn't even know the correct name of his hometown. Eventually, he's placed in an orphanage and finally adopted by Tasmanian couple John and Sue Briley, who were played by Dave, David Wenham and Nicole Kidman. Um, John and Sue also adopt Mantosh a year or so later, another boy from India whose traumatic past has led to some serial serious mental health problems. 20 years later, Saru begins searching for his home and his family using Google Earth and researching possible trains from the night he was lost. Finally, after years of searching, he finds his home on Google Earth and he returns to India to find his mother and sister are still living in the same village. An absolutely incredible ending to a movie that we kind of know is going to happen but still everything about it is a surprise. Um, yeah. Kim, I'm going to ask you in a moment if you cried but I just want to remind you that in our episode on a, an affair to remember, also our episode on beaches I think, you said the running theme of this podcast is going to be that you won't be crying in the movies that we watch, <laughs> that older you is like more like in control or, or dead cold. to emotion. <laughs> um, so let's put a pin in that for the moment. But I, I want to ask you, Zoya, um, on this viewing, did you cry? I was – it's funny earlier when you were saying how some movies that you love you only watch once because they're too painful. This actually is the second time I've watched – the film. I've watched bits of it when other people have been watching mm. it or things like that, but I've consciously removed myself from the experience. And I found myself like resisting watching it again in time for this episode. Like I almost wanted to like avert my gaze because I knew it would be mm. painful. And yes, sure enough, within the first three minutes, I was crying again. Mm. Do you remember the exact moment, like what it was that set you off? It's literally just little Saru every time. There's like this moment, I think, quite early on where he and Gudu are, like, talking and he's being cute and small and I just I just see that kid, that actor is so good and I just weep. He's amazing, isn't he? He's just so... He's incredible. Yeah, I read a thing from the director. Was that in your notes, Mel? I don't want to steal your thunder. That The director chose him because he knew he could see that he was kind of Charlie Chaplin-esque in his mannerisms and he knew he'd be able to tell the story without too much dialogue. And it, it's so true. He absolutely tells that story perfectly with his, his face and his mannerisms. Isn't he extraordinary though? Like when you think about that we've all got, you know, five-year-olds in our lives or have had them in our lives and, and are a bit older, mm. like there's just no way – 
my nephew could do that. There's just I tried to get him the other night. We got an we got an email through saying that the ABC needed voices for something. <laughs> and I'm like, do you want to be in a cartoon? Great. And he was it. There was, there was no getting a performance out of him. Yeah. None. <laughs> I have three, well, I have four nieces and a nephew and definitely my youngest niece, who is literally five, is quite theatrical and I feel like she would do almost anything for the um for the claps. Like you could probably get her to do most <laughs> things. But I will also say, going back to why I cried, I've been to India multiple times and I've seen kids like that who mm. are literally on the streets and it wasn't a stretch of the imagination. Like... The way that they construct those scenes and the way that even down to the clothes that they're wearing, very, very realistic. And so I think there was also this sense of, you know, looking at um, Sunny and being able to think that of all those other kids that I've seen in similar circumstances or at least, you know, on the streets, sitting in the dirt without food to eat. So that I think is part of the reason why I have such an immediate reaction because it's not hard to extrapolate from that and think about the kids that are probably going through a similar thing right now. Yeah. Maybe not the train station specific similar thing, but yeah. What is that like? I've never been to India and I think that one of the reasons, if I'm being totally honest, is because I'm afraid of those kinds of situations. Like, you know, I, I live in the middle of Sydney. If I was to walk down the street and see a child on his or her or their own, you know, um, clearly in poverty, clearly alone, I would do something about that. Do you know what I mean? Like there Mm. was, we all would. We would Mm. all, you know, take that child to the police station or to our homes to give them a meal or to, while we call, you know, we would do something. And I think the thing that scares me about going somewhere like India is apparently, you, you know, you hear these stories, you watch movies like this, that this is an endemic problem. What is it actually like there, mm. Zoya? And, and what, what goes on in your own heart and mind? Yeah, I actually wrote a whole chapter in my book about this because I felt I was very affected um, both times that I went to India by what we saw. And my parents did try and prepare us a little bit. Um, and bearing in mind that both my parents were born in Fiji like we were, they had been to India as adults, um, but they didn't grow up there either. And I think like the first thing to note is the experience that you have going to India when you're Indian is very different to going to India as a white person because the way that people react to you and respond to you is quite different. So you get kind of a clearer sense of what the day-to-day behavior is. And most people do just walk past beggars on the street because there are so many of them. Like there's mm-hmm. there's no sense of um, personal responsibility because how could there be? And Mm. we were told pretty early on by my parents, you know, don't, we won't give people money straight away, um, but any opportunity that there was to help someone, we did. So dad would do things like take people and buy them food. Um, I remember having this one, this one day, I can't remember where we were, but we did this big driving trip when I was about 11, um, where we went from Mumbai down to Delhi. And then we went through kind of Rajasthan and Gujarat where um, my family's from we stayed in the village for a long time so we got quite an authentic experience Um, but I remember one day we went to this big temple and a lot of um, the impoverished but also beggars were in that area and dad gave us each a little stash of money and said I want you to go find someone that you want to give this to and I want you to think about it and you get to make the decision on who it is Um, but you know go do that now and we all kind Mm -hmm. of wandered off and found somebody here and you know I probably just went to the first person and gave the money because I can't walk past anyone but when we were leaving the temple clearly people had seen this happening this woman kind of attached herself to us and was asking dad for money and dad kept saying I'm not going to give you money because I've seen that you're with x y and z over there and I I know that this is a beggar ring but if you want money if you want food I can go buy you flour um to make your your kids food and she was like well I don't want your food I just want your money and they are they bickered the whole way to the grocery mm. store, at which point dad bought like two kilos of flour and was like, here you go, this is what you get. And I remember thinking the contrast between the two scenarios, the the first where you can kind of go and, you know, hand out money in this gracious way. And the second way you have to actually really push against the economic forces that are acting on, on these people's lives it was quite interesting. Um, but there's another memory that I put in the book. And I actually have a photo of it to this day where we were standing we were just standing on a street corner. I can't remember what we were doing there, but I was looking across the road and there was this little kid, probably around the, around five, 
right? In your head, you could just picture Sonny into this role, um, the kid who plays Zaru, mm-hmm. and it would work quite well. He was sitting there and there was a little baby girl on the stoop next to him and they were just sitting there together and I had this bag of pineapple pieces that we must have bought for me to snack on and so I walked across the road and I gave the little kid the pineapple pieces and he said thank you and then I sat there watching and he was taking the pieces and breaking it up and giving it to his baby sister and this kid was like five, right? Like mm. to to be hungry and to feed your sister mm. because you're already so mature because you have to be because you're on the streets. And so I snapped this photo of them from across the road and I still have it to this day. And I think maybe that's what I was really kind of hooking onto watching this movie with those types of scenes of just really ordinary day-to-day poverty, uh, which is, yeah. it is rife. It is endemic um, in India. And I mean, I haven't been back for well over a decade now, so I couldn't say with any accuracy what it's like now. Um, but yeah, it was very much true to true to what we see in Lion. The thing I find really interesting about those depictions of poverty in Lion is that Saru's experience of poverty with his family is still very loving and not upsetting, um, you know, and he's he's got people around him and he's loved and he has enough. You know, he doesn't have much, but he has, I, I don't know if enough is the right word, I, you know, but uh, – compared to the scenes of poverty when it's him and a whole bunch of other children trying not to be snatched from the streets and and him having to, you know, sort of work out if this woman who's trying to help him is actually, you know, his saviour or if she's going to, you know, set him up with what's probably a pedophile or, or, you know, sort of someone trafficking kids for pedophilia. That was my interpretation of that scene. But what he experienced in those early years of his life with his with his family kind of it was it I don't know it just really spoke to me about resilience and and the kind of sort of imprinting that love can give you that um sort of resilience gives you for him to have gone through that situation and come out the other side a, a fairly stable human being adult man compared to what Mantosh went through which was far, far worse. And I, I read a little bit about, um, I read an interview that Sue Briley did with um, Mia Friedman on No Filter. And she sort of talked a little bit about what Mantosh had been through. And in so many ways, Saru's experience was just a one-off tragedy as opposed to an ongoing series of, of horrors for him to go through. What about you, Mel? When did it make you cry? Well, when I first saw it, it was about 15 minutes in and then I didn't stop but this time um so this is weird in the when I watched it the first time the the overwhelming poverty of his life and being separated from his mother and his brother was very very upsetting but weirdly I started crying when he got to Tasmania this time and I really I really started to think about why that was you know like I I specifically I started crying when he and Nicole Kidman connected for the first time and I thought whoa 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 is that very sort of like am I happy he's with the white people now am I happy that he's like been saved and he's got like a warm bed and he's got food yet he's so far away from his culture he's so far away from his mother I really wondered about my reaction in that moment because you know also it's the um, Sue Briley's relationship with Saru and her uh, relationship with Mantosh and, you know, it's it's famously documented now that, you know, she is a lovely person and the like. And I, I had to sort of examine why it was that moment that that started the waterworks and not, not the rest. I, I don't know. Did you experience anything similar there, Kim? Like, with- Yeah. I had the kids with me when I was watching this, which sounds insane, I think, actually. And I did feel a bit, as we were watching the first sort of 40-odd minutes or so, uh, where Saru is experiencing everything he's experiencing, I was kind of wondering if I should you know, how am I going to explain this to the kids? I felt really like, what am I going to say their questions? But I also think it's important for them to learn through media about the world. And so, but I was just anxious and gripping Olive, my six-year-old, so tight for the whole, that whole time. And I just felt physically, you know, I, I was feeling a physical reaction 
uh, of anxiety. And I teared up when he was in the bath at John and Sue's house and I had the exact same reaction. I was thinking to myself, okay, am I now happy that that he's been saved and, (laughs) you know, is this a white saviour story? But I think actually a big part of what was I found upsetting about that was that although he had been, uh, he was taken out of the desperation of the situation he was in, he was taken even further away from his family mm. and his likelihood of ever reuniting with them was had become, that, that gap had become so much bigger and I felt actually really upset about that as well. So it was, yeah, it was a really complicated set of feelings. What do you think, Zoya? I have a Tell theory. Tell us off. Come no, on. No, no, I have a theory about <laughs> both of your reactions and I wonder if it's because we each kind of have a different level of um we bring our own kind of lived experiences to what we view. And whilst I can connect quite strongly to the scenes in India because I've been there and I understand Mm. a lot of the kind of cultural cues and I understand the um, level to which it's been dramatised versus how much is quite true to reality, I wonder if actually seeing Saru transplanted into an Australian setting and something that you're both very familiar with and that you can Um, resonate with actually does trigger the emotion more because you go from feeling kind of like you're viewing something from the outside and and you're taking Mm. it as it kind of comes to being able to really see how for that kid having a warm bath would have been a really crazy experience right because I mean he wouldn't have been having warm baths with his family in the village either because they don't have the same kind of plumbing they wouldn't have had access to hot water so for me I found those scenes really touching as well because in fact one of the scenes that I found really touching in that way was still in India where he's with that um, the woman, Nora, who kind of picks mm. him up from the railway station and is probably doing something nefarious. Um, and sorry, um, Chris is just bringing the dog in <laughs> to the bedroom. And really <laughs> no quiet, but Charlie can't, he just can't look at him. We love dogs. We've got, we've always got dog, Hello, dog guests on this podcast. Um, always. I just thought it was really funny how Chris is trying to like hurdle hurl him in while holding his tail down so didn't whack and um (laughs) whack the door anyway um one of the earlier scenes where I started feeling really emotional was similar to this idea of what he was like once he came to Australia it was when the woman Nora tries to help him takes him to a house and she gives him this bottle of soft drink Mm. and Mm. you just see this moment where his little eyes light up and he like drinks it. And it was such an ordinary childhood kind of moment. Mm. And I think the reason why it sparked the tears in me was because the contrast between that normalcy and how small and trivial that should be um, and mm. the magnitude of it for this kid at this time really yeah. struck me. So I wonder if that's kind of what happens when you see him in Australia and all these little things that, you know, the average Australian child can completely take for granted. It does, even if there is a level of kind of, western savior um lens that comes over the top of that i think it does make the contrast so much more stark and so mm. you, it's natural i think to feel quite emotional at that yeah yeah and interestingly i i feel as though and i'm you know obviously fully prepared to be corrected on this but i feel like the movie handled that idea of white saviorship actually really well in that I didn't come away with a sense of, well, everything would be all right if there were just, you know, enough Sue and Johns in the world to to save all of these kids. I came away with a sense that Saru is just one person with one individual story and there's just so many more stories out there that don't have the kind of ending that Saru's has. You know, and Mantosh, again, a- again, you know, Mant- Mantosh is a clear example of that, you know, he's not going to have that happy ending that Saru had. But um, I felt like the movie made sure that we knew that not everything is okay for everybody all the time. I also think that maybe what it did quite cleverly was it showed us that there were also Indian people helping at various points in the story. So the first um, person who really starts this journey for Saru towards being adopted to Australia and having a more positive outcome to his story is this guy who sees him through a window, um, Mm. you know, mimicking his movements while he's eating his lunch and saying, you know, with sign language, basically, like, I'm hungry. Um, Mm. And this young man goes and takes him to a police station and kind of starts this process. And I think if all we saw was 
sad boy alone in poverty and then white people come and help him. That would be one type of narrative that would very much rely on the stereotypes of, you know, the West automatically being a quote-unquote better life and, you know, Mm -hmm. Indians not being able to help themselves. Whereas the fact that we see, you know, that guy and then the people in the orphanage, the woman who um, shows him that they have genuinely tried to find his family, I think all of those things added a level of depth to the narrative that meant that it didn't feel like this kind of cookie-cutter trope of, um, you know, India, bad, Australia, good. Like, it, mm-hmm. it just had that depth. The debate in 2022 is hot about who can tell whose stories, though. And in a way that wasn't happening in 2016 when this came out and from, say, 2012 when it started to be developed. So we see this this movie is made predominantly by white people. We've got a white director, a white screenwriter, um, majority white producers. Do you think... We, we've said, I said earlier, I feel like it's kind of a masterpiece of cinematic beauty and all that kind of stuff. Is it right, though, I guess, in, I mean, in 2022 that this film would be, I mean, it wouldn't be made by Luke Davies and Garth Davis in 2022. And I wonder, is that something we should be discussing on this podcast now? I don't know, because at the end of the day, it was written by Sue Briley um, Mm. in his book, and he was obviously involved in selling the rights um, to the film and I would imagine consulted on levels Um, you know, elements of the script and the way that it was produced. My viewpoint on the kind of cultural appropriation conversation when it comes to storytelling has always been a little bit more complicated than simply like how many brown people were behind this movie. Because to me, it's actually, when we think about it in terms of a brown person could tell this story better than a white person, we're actually just kind of homogenizing groups anyway. The reality is like, say I had been co-opted to write the screenplay for this movie as another Indian. There's no question that I wouldn't have been able to tell that story any better than a white person here because even though I'm Indian, my personal circumstances are very, very different to what Saru's Mm. would be. We're from different parts of India. We have completely, there are completely different languages, cultural, um, you know, traditions, um, different types of ways of life, um, different religions. It, I don't think that that's necessarily the most nuanced way for us to look at it and my view on it is usually what what's the authenticity behind the story if a group of white movie makers decided to make a movie about a story like this that wasn't a based on a real story that was told by the person involved from their lived experience um and that constructed it as a figment of their imagination that i think would be a problem and that I would review. But I think when it comes down to like where the roots of the story are, I feel pretty confident in saying that this was true to Saru's viewpoints and his memories. And that's kind of all that matters to me in terms of the ethics of mm-hmm. it. Do yeah, you have any right. thoughts on that, Kim? Yeah, no, I, I totally see where you're coming from, Zoya. I I hadn't really thought about because because this is Saru's story, I hadn't really thought about who else was making the film because I just considered it as him telling his story and it does seem in my research that so much of it has stayed true to the original story as well i'm wondering though zoya your experience as a as a migrant so an indian migrant growing up in australia is really different from saru's in that you grew up with an indian family and saru didn't do you does any of his story though of that growing up in australia resonate with you I found it really probably one of the only scenes of Saru as an adult that really touched me was the initial scene where he's at university and he's kind of sitting um, around with other students and there are quite a few international students from India who um, have obviously lived and grown up in India and they're kind of talking about like how to eat Indian food and just little things and he can't engage with it because he doesn't have that kind of cultural knowledge. That actually isn't that different, though, to how I felt as a teenager going to India and, again, not being able to kind of do the Indian things the way that Indian teenagers over there could because I'd grown up in Australia. So I think that idea of cultural loss is something that is obviously different if you're adopted versus have grown up with Indian parents, but it's quite common amongst second-generation migrants to varying degrees. But I kind of resonated with that quite a bit because... 
I could see the sense of discomfort and awkwardness um, in him reflected in myself where you want to belong, but you're just inherently different because you, you don't have the day-to-day cultural, the cadence of like living in that culture mm. and with that, um, with those traditions and those approaches and just the way of life. So I actually did kind of connect to that probably more than expected. Um, yeah. And just that sense of being an outsider in two worlds because, you know, people ask where you're from in Australia. For him, how does he explain that um, in a way that people expect mm. and that kind of meets mm. their expectations of um, simplicity, whereas his story is so complex um, yeah. to a, a much lesser degree. We kind of have a similar um, issue trying to explain Fiji and India. And, yes, I was born there, but I've lived here for very long. So, no, I don't know what it's like over there. And, you know, that kind of um, convoluted aspect I also just want to say quickly that I heard myself say one of the only times when he was an adult where I actually gave a shit. And I, I have to say, <laughs> I feel so much more of an emotional connection to the child narrative than the adult narrative. Not because I don't see the through line and not because, you know, Dev Patel didn't act it beautifully, but because I just really struggle in general with films to connect to adult stories of sadness. What does that say about me? Right. I don't know. Is <laughs> That's really interesting because, yeah. like, I find certainly with books and with films, I'm the opposite. If something's about teenagers or kids, mm. I mostly can't be bothered with it. <laughs> like, I actually want to go into the nuts of – into the nuts – into the nuts <laughs> and bolts, I'll say, of the adult experience, like what's going on. But this film, I think it's got a lot to do with the immense charisma of Sonny – yeah. Is it Piwa or P- it's Piwa, isn't it? Pawa, Sunny Pawa. Yeah. It's interesting. I would love to read the the actual book because mm. I'd love to know more about Saru's um, experience growing up in Tasmania because, like, from somebody who knows Tasmania intimately well and only really knows India through um, pop culture, it looks like they could not be more opposite, mm. you know, in climate, in population, in every sort of aspect. But one thing this movie does so beautifully is that it mixes in the landscapes of India and Tasmania in the most incredible way. Like as a let's talk about this in terms of the the filmmaking. And I mean is that part of what makes this film so epically emotional? Such an epic weepy, do you think that it 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 feels like an epic from the beginning of the film because of the landscapes that we keep seeing and being reminded of. Probably the only thing that didn't feel epic was all the time he spends like zooming in on Google Earth, like <laughs> because that that really ruined the narrative for me because it's so epic. Like those initial scenes where you kind of have this like traipsing of these two brothers through this amazing scenery, and it's it's witches to show just how far they travel, and you know the mountains mm. give way to um to plains, and then there's those trees and the village and these winding streets and you know, this beautiful footage that very much like sweeps from above and goes, you know, you see everything from a distance and then into the gritty detail. I do think that that helped to just build this sense of like a a big moving life and then to have it all kind of at the point at which, um, you know, you're in the train carriage with him in that, in that clip that you played earlier, Kim, everything is suddenly really small again and claustrophobic mm. and frightening. And I think that kind of that kind of interplay was done so beautifully. Um, I think the landscape element, I actually didn't really think about the fact that it was in Tasmania very much, Mel. I wonder if because you know Tasmania, you really hooked onto that more. Um, because I had to remind myself oh, so a few much. times, oh, yeah, shit, this is in Tasmania. Yeah, right. No, I could. I, I felt like it was beaming Tasmania. And there's a really interesting bit of trivia about it too. There's this beautiful scene where Saru is walking on a bridge in Tasmania and then suddenly we, we're on, the, on a bridge in India. And I was reading about how um, just in the IMDb trivia or something like that, it said the Howrah Bridge had to be closed for a whole day for filming line. I'm like... It's not called the Howrah Bridge. It's called the Tasman Bridge. But I see why they did that because Howrah is where they did a lot of the shooting for um, for in Tasmania. Isn't that weird? So the Howrah, the Howrah Bridge was actually the Indian bridge that they were talking about. It's called mm. the Howrah Bridge. Yeah. And a lot of the filming for this film was done in Howrah, Tasmania. Oh. Like, is that not like <laughs> that which is, is a suburb of, of um, a suburb of yep. Hobart? That's random. Isn't that incredible? Like just that. 
that it is. It's just like this tiny little yeah. like another way that this film connects. Mirrors it. it. I definitely noticed the way that the landscapes kind of the parallels. So the the coastline of Tasmania, the way that that um, was shot in a very similar way to the rivers um, that he went past in and and splashed around in in India. And um, there were times when they showed him as a little boy running through trees and I was looking at it going, oh, they look like eucalypts, those trees. That's amazing. And there were some some real similarities in the landscape that I noticed. But it was stunning to look at and it was stunning to listen to as well. I was just, when I was going back and looking at those clips, this, just the soundscapes of mm. the, you know, the the insect noise and the bird chatter and the kookaburras when they come to Australia and, you know, it's all, it's subtle but it's also very, very mm. it, it, clear and done very well. I think we need to talk about the end. Like yeah. this, this podcast is called Weepies mm. and the end of this film takes some mother effing recovery from. <laughs> Even though from the second we sit down to watch this movie, we know what's happened at the end. We know mm. that it's coming. How on earth do they manage to do it so beautifully? Seeing Saru walk through that village and seeing how different he looked to the locals. Even that was overwhelming, I found. Mm. The film has been so expert in setting this up because we're so familiar. It's like we're returning home in this bit. We know the the corners that he's remembered. We know the planes that he's running across. They've just set it up so beautifully so that we're there with him. It's kind of like it's our story by now in a way that we we kind of are so with him, don't you mm. think? Yeah, I think this is where my cynicism comes in and I was like, this is too Hollywood. People wouldn't have the time or energy to, like, all fall behind him in this big mob to watch him hug his mother. Like, maybe to some degree, but, like, realistically, everyone would be like, what's with that tall guy? And, like, you know, like, I mean, I like the idea that this whole village has been, like, watching, you know, Kamala wait and and look and hope that her son returns and then it ha- Like, I get it. But I watching it was like... Yep, this is a Hollywood ending. I see that now. Like, <laughs> I didn't cry. I didn't cry at the end. Really? Zoya, isn't there a chance, though, that, like, the word has gotten around the street that Saru has returned? You know, that for years Saru has been missing and the word has sort of been whispered around. No, because there's so much tragedy that happens on a day-to-day level in a setting like that that people don't have the – people care but do not have – the time to spend that much of, of their emotions on a single tragedy. Like the stories that I know of just my own, the two villages that I'm from in India and the stuff that happens there on a day-to-day, the stuff that, like my dad's just finished writing um, the world's longest um, family history <laughs> that I've edited 18 <laughs> times. Anyway, reading through <laughs> some of the stuff that his family remembers and little stories that they have, even just of um, growing up in poverty in Fiji and then his dad in India, Bad stuff happens daily. Like, you don't yeah. have, you, you'd be like, that's so great that he came back. Like, maybe once everyone found out, you'd have a big gathering, but it's more likely that, that would take a few hours and then people would actually come to your house and you'd have a constant rolling stream of visitors. But not that many people do not have time in the middle of a working day to just stand around cheering. No, I don't believe it. I don't buy it. So do you reckon, well, they say in the um, in some of the writing about the film that all of the those people that gather around are the townsfolk from the town. They're actually the people from the town that gathered around to watch the filming, I don't know, or whether they were paid as extras. I would hope they're paid as extras. I mean, I'm sure they would all gather around if Hollywood was there. Yeah. But, like, <laughs> on the original day when it happened, I just don't see it. So Zoya did not shed a tear no. during the, that last bit. Oh, my God. I was completely manipulated by it. Oh, the only bit well, where the I thought about crying, the one bit where I thought about crying was <laughs> when he finds out that Gudu has died. Uh, because yeah. that character of his older brother is just this, like, beautiful, loving memory mm, throughout the whole yeah. thing. And I think, like, that actor also, like, what a star to build that level yeah. of connection mm. from a pretty short um, sequence of scenes. So, like, at that bit, I was like, yep, that's pretty sad. But the rest of it, I was like, yeah, man, like, you know, I don't buy it. There's a bit where all these, like, young men in the crowd start jumping up and down. I was like, absolutely not. That is, like, an American <laughs> reaction, not an Indian reaction. <laughs> that's very funny. The moment that really, I mean, I was crying. Definitely I was crying from pretty much the the moment they reunite. But when I just actually 
completely lost it was when they went to the real footage of um, the real Saru and Sue meeting Fatima for the, you know, the two mothers meeting. I really lost it over that. That was just so beautiful. And, yeah, you're right, the the line, just knowing that Guru didn't return because he died that night, you know, mm. like all of those years of not knowing. Well, that that's how he was able to haunt um, Saru up yeah. on Mount Wellington in Tasmania. That's yeah. how, you know, like that's maybe how. Do you want a little bit of... Um, of the aftermath story that I got oh, of yes, the real please. story. Well, this is just from Wikipedia. So, but this is this is on um, uh, Saru Briley's Wikipedia page. In the aftermath, he continues to live in Hobart. He and his Indian family are now able to communicate regularly. There wasn't a, a second older brother in the movie, was there? No. He does have a second older brother though. And Saru has returned to visit um, his family over a dozen times. He's also redone that train journey. Um, to sort of go from Kolkata back to retrace the journey. The older brother must feel massively shortchanged by that movie. Well, here's the thing, Mel. He was also reunited with his sister Shakila and his surviving brother Kalu, who are now a school teacher and a factory manager respectively. With the loss of Saru and Garu, their mother had been able to afford to send the second two to school. So just going to that, that sort of, Bad things mm. happen all the time to kids in India. Zoya, mm. it it created this different path for his siblings as well, which is really, really interesting. That is really sad. Yeah. Mm. But great. I know. Yeah. 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 Their father left when Saru was about three. He um they were a mixed religion marriage. So Hindu she she's Hindu and he was Muslim. And um he left and she opted to, rather than get divorced, she she opted to work to raise the kids. And has he ever reconnected with his, his biological father? He's apparently searching for him now. So that was oh, the last note amazing. in the aftermath is that um, in 2019 he announced that he's conducting a search for his father. Right. That's so interesting because actually through the movie um, you can hear the Muslim call to prayer in the background a few times, And but I know that um, some of their names are Hindu names. So I was getting really confused about what their religion was because it's, yeah, it's pretty divided um, in India. So that's fascinating to know. Mm, yeah. That is so amazing. Let me see if I've got any little trivias, Kim. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've got anything as good as that. The Look, my only um, connection in all of my time in Tasmania with Saru Briley was that I saw him one night at the Eastlands McDonald's. When I was at the drive-thru, he was inside ordering something. I feel like he'd be, this is just totally an ABC <laughs> in-joke, but I feel like he'd be one of those, um, you know, ABC locals who you get to do your your evenings panel for you. Like <laughs> You would think, wouldn't you? I didn't ever even think of that. You know, Zoya does this all the time for the ABC. Yeah. So. I can't believe I didn't think of that, Kim. The only thing that I really liked that I wanted to point out, and it's not really about the history of the story, but it's about the filmmaking. One thing that when I sat down to watch it, I thought, oh, they haven't told this in flashbacks. How perfect. I'd mm. forgotten that about it. I had thought, and it would be such an obvious way to do this film, to have Saru in Tasmania and suddenly getting memories and the like. But Garth Davis um it was deliberate. He, and I'll quote from IMDb, it says he decided to unfurl the story in as linear a way as possible, avoiding flashbacks, even though it would feature very little dialogue in the first half of the film. How about this? This is so interesting. Wall E served as an inspiration for the director when he first created the first half of the film. Isn't that amazing? Is that because the story is told with such little dialogue in Wall E? I think so, yeah. And it goes on to that Charlie Chaplin thing. I did actually think when I was watching, um, the first half of the film that it was kind of a hard ask on Western audiences because you start the movie with almost like 20 minutes or so, maybe it's less than that, maybe it's 15 minutes of um, subtitles, like almost everything. Oh, I think it's longer. I think it's longer. It's 58 minutes before we get to Saru as an adult in Tasmania. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I always find it really hard watching um, movies that have that have Hindi dialogue with English subtitles because the English subtitles are always slightly off. It's never quite <laughs> what's actually being said. So in my head I'm like, well, that's not what he said. But, like, it's close. Like, I get the meaning. It's the same. But I can't turn off that part of my brain either. <laughs> yeah, that must be frustrating. 
Zoya, I just want to thank you for bringing this beautiful, beautiful film to us and for joining us to talk about today. Is there anything final you'd like to add that we haven't asked you about or we haven't, you know, opened the way for you to say? No, uh, thank you so much for letting me weep about this movie again, but I also (laughs) will now go back to never watching it again because it's too emotional. Just one more question before we leave. Like when we started planning this podcast, we said we wanted to cover weepies but not depressing movies. Yeah. There is a lot that is depressing about this, but ultimately it is one of those triumph of the human spirit films. It's not kind of like everyone's dead, let's weep for that. Like we sort of weep at the fact of this this connection, you know, and this this biological, this drive that Saru has to be reconnected with his biological family. How does, what sort of headspace does this leave you both in, this film? I, again, in a depressed one because mm. I can't really connect to the triumph of the human spirit element without thinking about all of the other people mm-hmm. and children in situations of poverty or like displacement right now so yeah I'm, I'm finishing on more of a depressing note I just a random thing for you though when I was trying to decide which movie to suggest the other one um <laughs> that I thought about a lot was The Lion King which also has a lion <laughs> motif but because the scene where Simba finds his dead father's body and like mm. tries to like wake him up with his little his little lion yeah. cub nose like mm. pushing against him that makes me weep it's pretty beautiful. Well, that's sad, both animals it? and children being hurt. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Kimothy? How does it make you feel? Exactly the same way that Zoya just um, articulated is it is a triumph and it is a beautiful moment, even if it is a Hollywood moment. I'm I'm very willing to be manipulated by it, but I definitely came away just feeling desperately sad for all the mm. other children that don't have that experience. Um, thank you for, for crying. For, for, oh, oh, we should think of something that's like, thank you for us crawl, cry. Thank you for the cry. Yeah. You know what I mean? We have to think of a, like a catchphrase for this weepy. Um, Zoya, thank you so much. Uh, it's been really fabulous having you. Thank you. Anytime. Zoya Patel is the host of two podcasts, Margin Notes and Book It In, both of which you can find wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Thanks so much to our fabulous social media editor, Shez Robbie. And make sure you tell your friends to listen to Weepies. And please, if you have the time, can you go to iTunes and rate us and leave a review because it means lots of people will come and see us then. We're on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Melanie Tate. Kim? I'm at Kim Lester. And Zoya? I'm at Zoya J Patel. See you next time. Bye.